All right. Shut up. We're going live. But I don't want to be quiet. <laughs> All right, folks. We're back with another episode <laughs> of Skirmish Supremacy. I'm your host, Tim Korkleski. I am joined as normal by my uh, co-host, Nick, who now that he's not sick anymore, you know, apparently won't shut up when I'm doing an intro. <laughs> and now, no. This is the real episode 50, since apparently last week I couldn't count, and I was just like, yeah, we're doing 50. No, I was wrong. No. This is actually episode 50. And tonight we are joined by Rodney Thompson of Scratchpad Publishing, and he's Hello. going to be talking to us about all of his cool stuff he's got coming out. Rodney, how the hell are you doing, man? Doing great, man. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you have a limited amount of time tonight, so this is going to cut our episode a little bit shorter. So let's just dive right into it. You actually okay. have a Kickstarter coming out called Dusk City Outlaws. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a tabletop role-playing game that I've been working on for a little, well, right out of a year now. Uh, an idea I, I hatched up about a year ago, and uh, sort of the, the confluence of a couple of different ideas, or two or three ideas. Like, I had a, a vague idea for a resolution system, and I had a cool idea for a setting, and I had, like, a goal for, like, what would I do if I was ever going to do a Kickstarter? And that all kind of came together uh over the course of like the last year and I'm getting real close to being able to put this out and uh, hopefully let people uh, get to play it. It's um, it's a tabletop role-playing game. Like I said, it is a game about being a band of criminals and you are uh, in a big fantasy city, like think Renaissance Venice, but on the scale of like modern day New York city and uh, you and your, your crew of three thieves all come together and are given a, a job to do and you come up with a plan get out in the city and do a bunch of legwork and then you pull off the the heist or the con or you know whatever the way is that you actually uh, uh execute your plan nice nice so tell us a little bit about the background i know you said it's kind of yeah. like a a fantasy venice yeah and uh you know the different guilds of the the, the thieves of the outlaws and you yeah know, kind of fill us in sure yeah so the the setting is a city called new dunhaven and it's it's obviously modeled off of uh new york city a little bit uh renaissance venice a little bit and then if you've ever read uh you know some sort of urban fantasy novels like uh the lies of Locke lamora any of the gentleman <laughs> bastards books stuff like that kind of based on those right i wanted a really big, broad setting, a setting that is uh, kind of where anything can happen, right? Uh, because the game is very sandboxy. Uh, the players drive all the action. The, se- the players set up all the scenes. The players uh, are really in charge of directing where the story goes. And I knew that I couldn't have a really tight, like, lean carefully designed, like fully detailed setting because I didn't want to demand that the players like read an entire setting book before they could play the game. So it's kind of broad, but uh, the big sort of most important aspect of the setting, in addition to being really big, is that there are these eight criminal cartels and they rule over the city's underworld. And these cartels have an arrangement among themselves that's basically like, okay, we're all trying to get rich here. We can squabble a little bit over turf, but we're not going to have any open gang warfare. What we're actually going to do is you're going to stick to your turf, I'm going to stick to my turf. And uh, in order to kind of maintain the peace of this arrangement, they... Uh, whenever someone has like a really big important job to do, they hire a crew of people taken from a couple of different cartels uh, so that like you get this really diverse crew, they go do the job. And then those cartels that those crew members are drawn from split the ill gotten gains that they, they take away from it. So, um, 
the the setting is kind of heavily inspired by, of course, like I said, the the Gentleman Bastard series, but also Legend of the Five Rings. You know, I I had a really great experience with uh, L five R a couple of years ago, and it kind of opened my eyes to like the strength of settings that have like really vivid factions that are operating with sort of uh, tension between them, but also the the sort of shared enemies, right? And so in this setting, the cartels they have tension between them, but there's also shared enemies. Obviously, like law enforcement is their big enemy, uh, but also there's like a ninth cartel of criminals that they don't abide by this arrangement. They prey upon the uh, the other criminals <laughs> in the city, so, you know, they're, they're the bad guys to the bad guys, right? Uh, you know, the, the setting has uh, some fantasy elements to it, like there's alchemy, uh, there's sorcery, but sorcery is kind of uh, I don't say forbidden, but it's dangerous and very costly. Uh, and it's something that really mostly shows up for NPCs in the game, uh, but yeah, it's uh, there's there's uh, firearms in the setting, right? So it's very like late Renaissance level technology, but throw in a dash of alchemy and sorcery for those fantasy twists, and uh, that's what that's what you get with the game. Nice, nice. So tell us a little bit about some of the factions. Like, what are the you know yeah. obviously these are going to turn into archetypes for yeah. characters. You know, when I was designing the game, I was really inspired by um, the Gamma World game that I worked on at Wizards of the Coast that came out during like the 4th edition D&D era. And I really loved the combine two things together to make your character, right? So one of the two things you combine together to make your character is your, your faction. And so the factions all have their own kind of motivations, their own styles, and some of them are kind of inspire, inspired by real-world criminal organizations. Like, there's one called The Family, and The Family is lightly inspired by like the Italian mafia uh, and like, especially like the, the Hollywood version of the Italian mafia, maybe not the right. real actual Italian mafia. Right. <laughs> uh, so like they, they, they operate legitimate businesses and they, they fence goods that fell off the back of a truck and they take over whole neighborhoods for their, their criminal endeavors. Uh, they're really wealthy and flashy and maybe a little tacky on the side, but uh, I also, you know, took I, whenever I uh, was creating one of these factions, I take like inspiration mostly, like I say, from the pop culture version of those criminal organizations, and then then do a little twist, right? So I said, okay, what if uh, what if the family isn't just like the Italian mafia, but what if it was like the Mediterranean mafia? So you've got you know characters that are kind of inspired by uh, your traditional like Italian mafia guys, but also like maybe a touch of like Spanish or Middle Eastern flair as well. Uh, North African, etc. Right, uh, trying to put kind of a different, maybe a little bit broader spin on these archetypes, but still have that recognizable thing to go back to. Um, there's another one called the Forgotten, and the Forgotten are basically they're the cartel of criminals that don't have anywhere else to go. They're they sort of fell through the cracks, and that's why they're the Forgotten. And they're mostly composed of street gangs that that kind of have their own small turf inside of Forgotten Turf, uh, and they're heavily inspired by the the old uh, movie the warriors right which is a it's a classic right but these sort of big colorful gangs in a, a obviously not realistic version of new york city translate that into the game and that's what the the forgotten are right um so here there's the the circle is kind of russian mafia inspired they're sort of uh refugees from a, a collapsed empire 
They are, they're often used as like the muscle on the job. They're the big competitors to the family. Uh, yeah, each, each one has its own sort of uh, inspiration in real pop culture archetypes, but then also like it's twisted and turned around and then wrapped into the setting in its own kind of unique way. And I want to do that because I want you to kind of, again, it's, it's to help the players ease into the setting a little bit. If you know what the archetype is, it's easier to, you know, sort of improvise your own version of that. And the reason I wanted to sort of twist them and make them a little bit broader is so that I, I don't really want anybody to ever feel like, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't play that character right, or you didn't do the right thing as a member of the family. It's like, eh, no, they do a lot of different things. And, you know, as long as you're kind of in the, the pop culture ballpark, then I think that that's what I wanted to achieve. Right. It also saves it from where, like, you know, the circle where they're kind of the, the Russian mob. You don't have to know the Russian mob to know right. how to play the circle. Right. You, it, so. it helps if you've read, like, the uh, the Matt Fraction Hawkeye series that came out a couple of years ago with the oh. hey, hey, bro, the guys in tracksuits. <laughs> <But, laughs> I was going to say, you, you just have to have a love of tracksuits. Exactly, you? yeah. <laughs> tracksuits are hot in New Dunhaven, let me tell you. <laughs> of course, I mean, you know, if it's a fantasy setting, I guess, you know, an alchemist has kind of figured out how to make, uh, you know, the the polyester, plastic, whatever. Oh, yeah. Suits. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's actually rubber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sweating to death on it's the very job. Hot. It's very hot. It's very warm in here. Well, why don't you take that off? Because I won't look as good. This, this, this is what I look like. <laughs> I have a style and I'm sticking to it. Worst part is when you start saying, yeah, this is my style, and it's snap-away pants, and you're like, right. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what kind of job are we doing? You what need your I- own personal brand, even if it is snap-away pants. Exactly. So <laughs> the one thing I noticed as well is you actually have, you know, besides having a whole unique setting, it, it, it you know, it's not a clone of anything from what I, I've seen. Yeah, you- it- I mean, I'm inspired by other uh, games, like I said, Gamma World or um, Iron Kingdoms. I actually also did the the pick two and put them together thing really well, and I, I like that a yeah. lot. But, I mean, you can really kind of, even like the A plus B goes all the way back to like D&D, right, with race and class. So, sure. obviously, there's that there. Um, I've got a, a narrative dice system game in the game that's kind of like it was originally, I really liked uh, what the Star Wars, the Fantasy Flight Star Wars dice system does for, like, storytelling, but I had some slightly different goals than they had for that game, so, uh, you know, like, some inspiration from other games, but, uh, you know, a lot of it is just things that I've been kind of noodling on in, in the back of my head for a while now. I mean, I I work on video games by day, but that doesn't mean I stop thinking about, like, how would I do whatever in a, in a role-playing game or a board game, and it, like I said, it was kind of this convalescing of things I'd been worrying around in my head for a while. Right, exactly. So explain to us, like, your dice system. Because you said that you actually yeah. created, like, a unique... Well, it started off as kind of like a unique mechanic that made it into the game, and I'm sure it's changed 80 different times from, you know, the first iteration to now. Kinda, kinda. I mean, like, it's mostly stayed the same, but it's, it's pretty straightforward, you know? Um, so... I wanted a dice system that was, it was really easy for a player to be able to tell what they're good at and what their chance of success was on any given roll, right? Like even something as simplified as the D20 system, there's like a a math layer that you pass through to figure out exactly how good you are at something. So if I've got like a plus 10, I need to start thinking about like, okay, what's the DC? What's my average roll on a D20? Blah, 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 right? And 
I wanted players to very quickly get into the game and know, like, okay, I'm good at X, Y, and Z. I know exactly how good I am in any given situation. I know what my chance of success is. And the best way to do that, in my mind, was with percentages, right? Like, if I say, you've got an 80% chance to succeed on that, that just means something to you in a really easily grokkable way that right. uh, doesn't require you to pass through a math layer. But percentile systems, uh, occasionally they can struggle a little bit when you have to deal with, like, varying difficulties or modifiers like plus 10 and minus 12 and stuff like that. And then the math actually gets a little bit harder. So what I decided to do was, okay, percentile dice for resolution. When you've got an 80% chance of success, that's it. Like there is no modifier up and down. If, if your character sheet says stab someone at 80%, whenever you try and stab someone, you got an 80% chance to succeed. But I also wanted to make sure that there was an easy way to tweak for certain circumstances. So like, oh, okay, this guy's tougher. He's more defensive. How do we represent that? Or like, oh, you're getting the drop on this person. You're surprising them. How do we represent that? And so that's where the sort of narrative other dice come in. There's two other kinds of dice. They're advantage dice and challenge dice. Advantage dice are D8s, and they have a positive symbol on them. And challenge dice are D10s, and they have uh, like a drawback symbol on them, right? And so every time you have a, a positive or neg- negative circumstance surrounding that role, you add in advantage or challenge dice. So like, oh yeah, you got the drop on him, so add an advantage die. But he's really you know savvy and defensive, so add a challenge die. Uh, and then you roll those alongside your percentile dice, and uh, if positive dice symbols come up, uh, then you get a positive other outcome. If negative ones come up, you get a negative other outcome. So you can do things like, oh, yeah, I succeeded on this roll, but I had a drawback. So it's like success, but there's something goes wrong along the way. Or like, oh, I succeeded and I got a, a boon. So it's like super critical success, right? Gives us gives me uh, six different possible really six different possible outcomes, right? Like success with upside, success with downside. Uh, and it does a lot of the heavy lifting for giving you sort of fun narrative twists and turns. Like I said, I really like the, the Star Wars, uh, the Fantasy Flight Star Wars dice system uh, does a good job of this. Like every die roll is a potential for an interesting story. And this is sort of like the streamlined, simplified uh, idea that goes alongside that. Also with the percentile system, so you can see how good you are on a moment's notice. So, you know, it gives me at any given time when I'm doing a roll, there's a, a story that could come out of it that is uh, more interesting than just the binary success or failure. Nice, nice. Awesome. So I like it. It definitely it adds its own flavor to it without it being math heavy. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it's it it plays really well with the idea. Like I really wanted the game to be something that you could pull off the shelf and play like really fast. And uh, to do that, you need to not be doing a lot of prep work. Like the scenarios need to be really easy. Like you need to be able to like read through the scenario in ten minutes and be ready to run it. And a lot of what causes. Uh, the, like a lot of what requires you to do more prep work is figuring out like what are the interesting twists and turns that could possibly happen throughout the course of this adventure, and the dice actually carry a lot of that weight. And I think they do this in the, the Star Wars system too, but also in Dust City Outlaws, they carry a lot of that weight by the fact that like every time the dice rolled, things can take a turn, and the the players really just need to look at what the present scenario is, do their interpretation of the dice, and then the the dramatic twists come out of that, right? Like the narrative bends based on what's happening in the moment. So the focus is really on right now as opposed to what did we prepare for in advance or what did some game designer design in the scenario, right? Right. So with this game, it doesn't sound like it, there's much of a need for a game master, if at all. 
There, there actually is. Uh, so it is very traditional in that respect. There's a judge, uh, and the judge's responsibility is to read the scenario. And the scenarios are, are very sandboxy, right? It's like, here's the job. Here are all the obstacles that could possibly come into play. Like, you're trying to steal this diamond. Here's the guy that owns the diamond shop. Here's his head of security. Here's what his security team is like. Here's the alchemical security measures that surround it. Here's uh, the city watch patrol schedule, right? That's all very sandboxy and doesn't really say, like, lead the players through A, B, and C. So the judge's responsibility is to, A, respond to what the players do, give them the information that they need, and then, you know, base the reaction of NPCs on the the sort of sandboxy stuff. Uh, The judge's other responsibility is to sort of read the situation and introduce challenges and obstacles on the fly that make things more interesting and more exciting. So there's a mechanic in the game called heat and heat. Think of it kind of like if you play grand theft auto, it's like stars in grand theft auto. Uh, and basically the way it works is when the players are out in the city committing crimes, if they're sloppy or reckless or they make a lot of noise or they get witnessed, uh, it generates heat and heat builds up and eventually the judge can spend this heat to introduce complications. And these complications can be, you know, canned like, oh yeah, spend four heat to introduce it to add a squad of city watch to the scene, uh, or like once you get more experienced with running the game, you'll be able to make up your own complications on the fly, right? But what this does is it lets the judge control pacing again without a lot of prep work, right? There's the right. It's sort of mechanized a little bit to take the pressure off the preparation so that you can have like, oh, yeah, the, uh, you know, like I've got a, one of them is, you know, if you spend 20 heat, you can have a plot twist where an ally that the players thought was their their friend turns out they've actually been secretly ratting them out to the city watch right it's like a big plot twist that you can spend this heat on and what that does is it means that i i didn't prepare or i didn't write into the scenario that you know jimmy the knife is actually you know he's a he's a rat right i let the judge make that call in the moment so the judge a doesn't need to know that in advance which reduces the prep work and then b can kind of read the scenario and if it doesn't make sense that jimmy the knife is a rat then you don't do it, right? But if it does make sense, and if it's awesome, then you spend it and you do it, right? And it kind of right. puts kind of puts that decision in the hands of the judge. I really like that. I mean, I I tend to lean towards a style of designing RPGs that puts a lot of trust in the hands of your DMs and game masters, just because I think that humans are one of the greatest resources that that role-playing games have going for them. And what I want to do with, with this game, with the heat system and the narrative dice system, is put a lot of tools in the judge's hands, and also in the player's hands to a certain degree, that basically say, like, okay, I'm going to make it easy for you to have interesting things happen. Uh, and and here are the, the simple tools that basically act as prompts for your creativity. Like it's just, it's all they are is they're not even like, here are the rules of exactly what you do. A lot of it's just like, here's a prompt that gives you, you the judge a moment where you're like, okay, here's where I can jump in and do something interesting or creative. And I think that, you know, it, it might be a little tricky if you've never run a game before, but if you are an experienced game master, or especially if you play like some more narrative or indie games, I think you're really going to be able to jump in and quickly be making up your own things. It's like, yeah, this sounds like a thing that would cost four heat. And now all of a sudden, you know, the bounty hunters bust through the door and, and start messing with you. Right. So uh, I'm jazzed to see, how people take to it, because I think what it's done is it's made it a game that you jump into way faster uh, from the time that you decide to play than, than like, you know, if you had to read a whole adventure, do a lot of prep work, etc. Because it's all, it's all kind of done on the fly. Right. Which well, I already feel there has to be, whenever I play this game, 
11 players. <laughs> I don't know why. Yes. You know, well, 11 just seems like the right number. Let me assure you that the right number is far fewer than that because, oh, my God, <laughs> the chaos. Uh, it, the game actually plays really well with, uh, you know, three players if one of them is, like, the, the judge, uh, up to about six players if one of them is the judge. So, you know, two to five members of the crew. Like, that's the, sort of the sweet spot for it. Um, and it can accommodate more than that and maybe fewer, although I haven't done any one-on-one testing. Maybe I should do that. Yeah, that might be a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot of call for one-on-one games, and uh, right now the game really it leans pretty heavily on the idea that players work together to solve these obstacles, because what will happen is like a player will define like a scene that they're going to do. Like, okay, I'm going to go uh, pay off the head of the the uh, diamond store owner's guard to not show up the day of the heist. Right. And so like they say, okay, I'm going to go to his house and pay him off. And then I'm the judge. And I say, okay, you go to his house and I spend some heat. And it's like, okay, not only is this guy there, but there's a member of that ninth, you know, asshole cartel that is there also trying to buy this guy off. And so, not only do you have to convince the head of security not to show up the next day, but one of your crewmates needs to distract or otherwise dispose of this rival criminal in order to to pull this off. So you you really have to work together. Uh, So I think having at least two members of the crew is pretty essential. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. So one of the things we were talking about before the podcast started, I know you don't have too much more time, but I did want to get your thought on it is we were talking a lot about nuances in RPGs. Like, you know, the the whole, like, open RPG day, like, just using a D20, and I, I don't want to call it a D&D clone. Those days are kind of behind us. Like, there's so many new systems out there that are kind of doing the same thing you're doing, where it's not, it's a lot less number crunchy, and it's a lot more like, okay, this is a basic role, and it interprets this. Mm-hmm. And it kind of streamlines things. Like, I know you've worked on a lot of different games in the past. Yeah. Like, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we are in in an era where it's easier than ever for a, a person with an idea for a game design to play that or to create that game, right? Like, Kickstarter, for example, has made it way easier for just the the average game designer or even someone who just designs games as a hobby, right, to get out there and put a game out there that people can play and also not go broke in the process, right? Uh, I mean, indie RPGs have been, I would I would argue, indie RPGs have been flourishing over the last few years, largely because the internet has made it easier than ever to connect with other people that have an interest in maybe less traditional or less well-known uh, games and mechanics. But, I, I mean, like, you know, there's, there's some of that, uh, you know, the... There are still games that are the basis of like whole sort of movements and cultures. Like you said, like D20, but also, you know, look at like Savage Worlds, right? There's a ton of great stuff out there for Savage Worlds or powered by the apocalypse, man. Like uh, Apocalypse World was the first one, but there's a ton of awesome powered by the apocalypse games or games that are just like one step away from that, that in, are inspired by that. And I think there's a really cool thing in the indie game community, especially uh, but, you know, in, in tabletop games in general that encourages people to hack and tweak and come up with their own modifiers and stuff like that. And and there's a really positive, uh, a, a positive 
movement, like a cultural movement inside indie games that I really love that says like, yeah, we are going to riff off each other's stuff and we are going to come up with new ideas. And, you know, yes, your game maybe have started out as a Savage Worlds riff, but then over the course of playtesting, you introduced a whole bunch of new mechanics and everything. And people embrace that and are excited because what really matters at the end of the day is that experience that we have at the table, right? Like how the game plays is the most important thing, right? You might have the coolest, most innovative mechanic in the world, but if it doesn't play well at the table you're not like it's not really going to fly and so i think there's like one part kind of game design meritocracy and then the other part like encouraging group community that has caused you know uh you know game designers who maybe have other careers or maybe are just starting out to put themselves out there and be visible and you know like if someone comes up with a cool idea people are going to talk about it and spread that idea and it's we're no longer in the world where you're dependent on a giant publisher or a huge advertising budget or whatever to get your get your game out there and get people playing and you know i think that has contributed to a I don't want to say a renaissance because it's certainly, you know, not not anything brand new, but like a really positive environment for indie game designers. And I think that's that's awesome, man. Like we need more of that. We need or rather we need to keep that going. Yes, absolutely. I, I 100 percent agree with you on that, because, yeah. you know, it, if you've been playing games for a long time, you know, of any kind, it doesn't matter if it's board games, miniature games, role playing games, whatever it is. After a while of seeing so much of the same kind of, I, I, for lack of better terms, me too, you, you kind of get bored. It's like, even if you're playing a whole new setting, you, you're still kind of saying to yourself, you know what? I've played this before. Sure. And so just by having like new systems out there or, you know, fresh takes on how an RPG should be played, you know, changes around a lot for a lot of people. I, I really like the idea also of like you said use the phrase fresh take and I think that's cool. Like I saw the other day, I can't remember what, what the name of it was, but I saw a pretty cool uh rules light cyberpunk RPG and I, I was looking over it and it sounded really awesome. And you know, like that setting has like the cyberpunk setting has been around for, for a long time, right? Like you could look at that and say, like, ah, it's just another Shadowrun clone, but what it really is is it's it's the new take on the genre, right? right. And I think that's that's exceptionally cool because there's even within like an individual genre, like I would guarantee you there are awesome cyberpunk games out there that play nothing like Shadowrun, right? But they they hit that that sort of genre feel in a certain way, but give you a different gameplay experience. And that, I like I think that's awesome. Like I might play feng shui for my, you know, martial arts action movie, uh, you know, to, to scratch that itch. Ridiculous, but, over the top, punch yeah. on somebody's chest. But I could also be talked into playing, like, here's this other game that does over-the-top action stuff, and it does it really well, and it does it in a different way, and maybe the goal of the game is completely different. I, you know what? I would rather see more options out there for us to play so that someone can find the uh, find the version of a genre, the version of a setting that they really like without having to, you know, say like, oh, well, Shadowrun already exists, so therefore I won't, won't make my my cyberpunk RPG. No, like, I, I still want you to make your cyberpunk RPG. Give me, give me more. I'm right, also exactly. a, a voracious consumer of games, so, you know, I, I, will, <laughs> I will play lots of things. Unite. <laughs> Yeah, I may or may not be a voracious collector. 
I yeah, I can understand. And the other thing is, I actually, uh, I guess, like it's probably three, four years ago now, switched one of my regular D and D groups over to a group where we change games about every two to three months. Like we play like three to four sessions of a game, and then we change games and we hop through games. So I get, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight new RPGs played a year, and that's been awesome because. I would buy these games, they would just sit on the shelf, and it's like, well, okay, I guess I'm never going to play that one, right? We've played old games, new games, indie games. We just got, the last game we got done playing was uh, the new second edition of Seventh Sea, but last year we played Marvel Superheroes, like the old uh, TSR face rip uh, Marvel oh, wow. Superheroes game, yeah. right? Uh, we played the West End Games Ghostbusters game. We played Monster Hearts. Like we, we hit all these different games. We played Iron Kingdoms, right? Like we hit all these different games, and that has been so great for me. And like when people ask me, like, oh, what? Like I want to get into the hobby. What should I do? One of my first recommendations is: so if you like playing a lot of different games, put together a group that does this because you know, like, a it means that books don't just sit on my shelf not getting played, but also it exposes you to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different uh, genres that maybe you wouldn't have known that you were going to enjoy. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that to it as well. Is uh, You know, for, for me, I, I always look at it as like, I want to find something, oh God, how can I put this without, like, myself? <laughs> I want to find something that, like, I'm kind of familiar with as far as, like, mechanically so mm-hmm. i'm not saying that like it needs to be d20 or it needs to be like the old west end game system like it has to be these mechanics but something to where it's like okay i i kind of look at it like running a demo at a convention where it's mm-hmm. like if i can't pick up on like the gist of how this game plays in 10 minutes then to me it might be like okay either this is like way over the top complicated and you know for an rpg for me that sometimes is a turnoff because I like my games to be more about role playing, not rolling the dice role playing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that that's always one of the things I look at. It's like if they're saying, "Oh, well, you know," then there's these modifiers and these modifiers, and you yeah. can specialize into this and then specialize into you know this little chain into the point to where it's like you can use this one particular knife really, really well. And I'm like, okay, what happens? If somebody takes that knife from me. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, for I, me, I, that, that's a lot of it. I think there's a, I don't say a trend, but I think it's something you hear more commonly these days is that the biggest thing that games compete over is not, you know, money. It's not like, you know, we're we're competing over like, oh, I bought this game, so I'm not going to buy this game. I mean, that still happens. But I think the biggest thing that games compete over is time and competitors are not just other games, but also responsibilities, right? Like a lot of, a lot of people that grew up playing games are now, you know, in their thirties and forties, right? And they have families or jobs or groups of friends or whatever that take away their time. And I think one of the strengths of you were talking about like, you know, a lot of indie RPGs end up being a little bit more streamlined or easy to understand or easy to get into. I think one of the strengths of that, of of that kind of game is that you spend more time focusing on the game itself than on learning the game or understanding the game. And that's a good way to put it. When time is your most precious commodity, you want to feel like your time is being used efficiently. Right. And so I, I sadly, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's the reality. It's definitely my reality, right? Like, I've got a day job and working on games at night and about to have a kid, and boy, there goes all my free time, right? And so 
when I look at a game, if I'm struggling to really wrap my head around it in the first 15, 20 minutes, it can be a real turnoff for me, right? Um, yeah, like I, I'm kind of the same yeah. way with that. And, you know, I'll still play D&D or, or a more complex game, especially in, like, a convention environment where it's like, okay, my time is blocked out for this. Or, like, you know, a game that I've designed, if it's more complicated or worked on, if it's more complicated, I can handle that. But it's uh, – I definitely lean more in the get in, get playing, use my time wisely and efficiently style of, of game these days just because, you know, that's – that's my personal preference. And there's nothing wrong with really, you know, if you love super crunchy, time-consuming RPGs, then those games are using your time efficiently because that's the thing that you like, right? It's more for me, like, I'm, I'm angling it like, boom, boom, boom. I want to try a lot of different games, right? Like, I want to play exactly. a bunch of different systems. So, you know, you got a, you got a short window to give me your elevator pitch these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like uh, the whole you know, touring the Gen Con hall and like oh, yeah. you've got 20 different RPG publishers yeah. and if each one can give you like the five minute pitch to where you're like, cool, I want to play that game. Then like, to me, that's where they win me over is like that five yeah. minutes. I, I kind of learned the gist of the game, the gist of the mechanics and what they're, what they're giving me. Like that to me wins me over more than like, Oh, well, you know, you have to really sit down and read the rule book. And, um, yeah. That that time element is actually one of the big drivers behind the design of Dust City Outlaws because I wanted a game that could come off your shelf quickly and like you know oh it's game night and two guys are out we don't want to cancel and we want to play an RPG let's pull Dust City Outlaws off the shelf and play that so a lot of the decisions behind the game design were around you know use my limited amount of time wisely like get me into the yes. game fast make character creation fast i mean honestly that's the reason why it's a box set like i chose a board game form factor and it's going to have some very board game like uh physical components because they are really good at getting you into the game like I mean, a lot of them obviously you can have your giant uve rosenberg three-hour extravaganzas that take forever to set up but and i love those games by the way uve is one of my favorite designers uh but uh for an rpg like if i like for for dust city outlaws i was like okay it's going to come as a box set so that when you're ready to play you just pull it off the shelf you hand out components to everybody so it's not like we're passing around a rule book or printing out character sheets or whatever like it's it, everything is focused on get to table fast, get to play fast from zero, right? Because respecting my time as a player is, you know, really important to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, no, that that makes it awesome because you show up somewhere and you're just like, hey, let's play. I mean, yeah. You know, it's- I mean, the first time you play, it's like a board game, right? The first time you play, it might go a little slower than that. But for my players that have, you know, been playtesting with me or players that have played it a couple of times, uh, jumping into the game fast is is a is a big part of it, right? Like, we know the rules. And the rule, honestly, like, it's a pretty rules-light game. There's the dice mechanic, there's heat, there's, like, a hit point mechanic, and there's a, one resource you can spend, and that's basically it. All of the rules for the game that you need to know during play are in at least short form on the table in front of you while you're playing. So, you know, like, you can't have a game that's easy to... Well, sorry, I don't say can't, because I, I might be wrong, but I didn't want to try and make a game that had complicated mechanics, but also was fast to play. Because that seems like that might exceed my skills as a game designer. <laughs> that and I think in, at that point, it also pressures people, too, because it's almost... With something like that, you'd almost be going, okay, well, why aren't you catching on? Like, if somebody's just like, whoa, hey, 
yeah. slow down a minute here. Let's walk through these numbers. And honestly, I'm one of those people. I am I'm very meticulous about the way I evaluate and learn game mechanics. And so the first time I play a, a board game or a really complex RPG, I might spend the first hour or so not really understanding how the game is supposed to work because I'm like scrutinizing every single individual element and really trying to digest it. And so that's why I've gotten to the point where with especially board games, the first time I play, I don't even try to win because I'm just like, whatever, this is my learn to play game. Right. And so, you know, I'll learn where I screwed up on turn two later on. Yeah, exactly. So, that's, why, that's why my my friends love having me over to play board games because they're like, ah, first time we play this game, we're going to beat Rodney. <laughs> so when are you supposed to stop having the learn games? Because I don't know if I've learned that one. Uh, yeah, that that doesn't ever happen for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, the thing you'll understand is that Nick has gone past collector to hoarder. Oh wait, no, we didn't even go there. Wait, whoa, you're going way back. I just was saying that I just don't win enough games. Yeah, well, there's Jeez. that too. I was actually trying to, you know, we well, you know I, this, I, you were the, trying to segue into my issues. <laughs> you know, come on. You, you know, they say that the average t- number of times that a board game is played is zero. Uh, and I, I find that to be pretty true. So my friends love playing with me because it's like, okay, my first play is the learning play, and then we never play again. So she's like, well, okie dokie then. We won. We're yeah, happy. That's, yep. That's always a tough thing to figure out with board games. It's like I'm very picky about them because of that. Like I don't ever want to buy something and just have it sit there. Like I mm. want to use it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that that's always been a tough one for me. Yeah. And, and you know, that's – I do the same thing with board games. I do the same thing with RPGs. I want to, pl- I want to spend my uh, like when I invest in a game. I want it to be something that I know is going to hit my table, if not more than once, at least one time. Uh, and you know that means that a game's really got to have. Uh, it's really got to sing to me. Uh, and so, like with when it comes to board games, I tend to play them, play my friend's copy first, and then I'll buy it. But you know, I still buy five, six, eight board games a year because there's a lot of great stuff out there and there's always more coming. I mean, we were talking about the the surge and great uh, role-playing game mechanics. I mean, the surge in board games over the last 10, 15 years has been equivalent. I think, like, now is an awesome time to be a tabletop gamer because there's such great stuff coming out of all sectors, whether it's board games or role-playing games. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's and nowadays, especially with things like Kickstarter and the fact that sure. we even have the internet to be talking about these games and just getting the information out there, it's not like it was in the past where it's like you had you you knew nothing until you walked into a game store and yeah. saw it sitting on a shelf. Well, sure. I mean, like like take take this this uh, podcast, right? You guys are all the way across the country from me, right? I got off work, I came home, and I hopped on Google Hangouts. We would never be able to have this conversation twenty years ago. You wouldn't even know what my game. My game wouldn't exist, right? Like the, no way Dust City Outlaws exists twenty years ago without the internet and Kickstarter, right? Uh, but you know, even if I did exist, you guys wouldn't know about it, and you wouldn't be able to do a podcast with me. Like we are in a time where the connections between gamers are growing only more frequent and stronger. Yes, very much so. I think th- this is this is why we see such a boom of it out there, and why we see so much more of an indie publisher mindset behind it as well, is because a lot of people, you know, and I, I kind of take some of this from you know me being in the industry. A lot of people look at it and go, "Well, I could be I could be beholden to a different publisher to get my stuff out there, or I could do it the way that I really want to do it." Yeah, and launch it that way. Yeah, 
And, then, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go, right? Like you can create your thing and sell it to a publisher or, or license it to a publisher or whatever. Um, a lot of board game designers do that, right? Uh, for me, like with Dust City Outlaws, the reason I wanted to make this game in the first place was that, I mean, A, I had these ideas, but also, like, you know, I've, I've been designing games professionally for over 15 years now and own uh, or, or directed or created wholly absolutely nothing other than this, right? Like, this is my first first time where I've gotten to drive the bus, so to speak, right? And it's been a huge amount of work, and oh my goodness, like, I was not even remotely prepared for some of these things that have been thrown at me, but it's been cool and rewarding, and also, like, you know, I got to work with a lot of cool people. Like I've got a, uh, my character designer is, uh, she's Joy Ang. Joy is the, she's a character designer and a title card painter for the Adventure Time cartoon, right? Oh, and, wow, nice. uh, yeah. And I went to Joy and I was like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm making this game and I want some character designs that are like really cool and bright and colorful and inviting, right? Because like it'd be really easy with a game like Dusty Outlaws that's all about criminals to go like hard edged, you know, crime drama or noir or whatever like that. And I feel like that is a genre that I would be crap at because I, I'm not hard edged. I'm about as soft edged as it gets. Uh, but I was just like, you know, Joy, I want to, I want to create a very inviting setting that kind of has a, a cavalier or swashbuckling or, uh, you know, uh, bad guys that you can root for feel and she goes away and she comes back with these character designs and I'm just like I could never have come up with that in a million years this is amazing like the stuff that she is, has come up with is spectacular and exactly what I wanted even though I didn't know exactly what I wanted uh, and I would have never gotten to work with Joy if I hadn't done this project like of my own volition right like I would have had to have, well I don't say never but I would have had to have hoped that our circles like entered each other's orbit in in a in the way to make it happen whereas when you do your own thing you kind of get to choose who you work with right so I got joy to work with me I'm working with Daniel Solis who's doing my layouts and Daniel is freaking amazing he's so good at looking at my text and being like here's how I'm going to make that actually good right and he's <laughs> like creating these layouts and graphic design stuff that is just light years beyond what I could do. So, you know, I uh, not to ramble about the creative process too much, but I realized uh, really a long time ago, but uh, more recently, that I am I'm no good without other people, right? Like I can't be that auteur designer that does everything in a bubble and like that's just not me i don't have there's a lot of skills that i don't have right let's put it that way i'm i'm narrowly focused in some ways right (laughs) and getting to do a game on my own means that i can go out there and find these people that i think are awesome whose work that i really respect and say like hey would you like to collaborate with me because i think we can make a cool thing right and aside from like the creative side of it and like getting a game out there it's just kind of fun to work with other awesome people, right? Like it's just been fun working with joy and Daniel. And I've got a couple of uh, people that uh, I used to work with at wizards now that are uh, my developers on the game. And, you know, like my buddy, Dan Jellen, who uh, was one of the original magic, the gathering artists, he did uh, art and icon design for me. And I get to work with these people and it's great. Right. So, 
anyone that is a part of this business, I think, especially in the indie game community, has probably gotten a sense of that just by the fact that it's like, hey, I respect your work and I would like to work with you. Okay, let's make an awesome thing. That happens all the time. I think that that actually is another reason why we're in a, a golden age or a, a really great time for indie RPGs is because people are collaborating and they're bouncing around and they're, you know, like, I made this game. I made this game. Let's combine our powers to form the Captain Planet of indie game design. And I, I think that that just produces better stuff than if we were all operating in a vacuum. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned how, like, you're able to find all these writers and artists because one of the things that I've been struggling with on my side with the stuff that I've been creating is I'm like, is, is finding the artists and the writers that understand the concept and, mm. you know, that, that's always a tough thing to do, especially like when, yeah, I don't want to say my time is limited, but you know, I've got a lot yeah. of things going on where yeah. it's like, okay, like I, I can do some of the art. I can do some of the writing. I can't do all of it. Like sure. that's, it's just the nature of the beast. And so sometimes like finding those artists that are willing to work kind of with your schedule without like, you taking over their life and yeah. causing them financial woes and heartache and all that, that can, that, it, it's a balancing act. Well, you know, the truth is um, I'm really blessed that I've been in the industry so long and made a lot of great contacts and met a lot of awesome people. So on the one hand I have, you know, just been super fortunate to come into contact with a lot of people that are really talented and really professional and really great at their jobs. So there's that angle of it. Um, the other side of it too, is that like, for example, my environment art, I didn't know any environment artists that really were hitting the style that I wanted. So I did got on the internet and did a lot of research and I found their online portfolios, right? Like that's a big part of it. Um, oh yeah. I, DeviantArt is a godsend. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I can't, I, I am garbage with art. Like I can't draw a stick figure, right? So I knew that, that I was going to have to get out there and find people that could do it because I just didn't have that skill. And so when I found those people, you know, I I kind of said from the beginning, uh, you know, thinking back to my freelance days, that I wanted to make sure that when I hired someone else to do the work that I needed to do to make this game. I want to make sure that I'm paying them fairly, right? Like that was really important to me because, you know, when I was a freelancer, I took some jobs that were for kind of peanuts. I took some jobs that I still have never been paid for and whose companies don't, don't exist. Yeah. I mean, not even that, right? Like I took some low paying jobs and I took some, some uh, jobs that, that didn't ever pay out because the company went under or whatever. And I didn't ever want to be the, I didn't ever want to be the publisher that, or I don't want to be the publisher that does that. Right. Like I want to be the publisher that people are happy to work with because I want to work with awesome people. Like I said, right. And so what I did was I went to these artists and I was like, okay, how much do you charge? And they told me, I was like, great, that's what you get for this job. Right. Like I basically just let them set their own rates in a lot of ways. And if I couldn't afford them, I was just like, I'm sorry, I can't afford that. I'm not going to try and and lowball you here. Right. Um, Because I, I want to pay people what they think that they are worth. Because honestly, in my opinion, a lot of people, uh, they undervalue themselves, right? They're like, oh, like, I'll do it for this much. I'm just like, really? That seems like it's a little low. So, you know, I I really wanted to make sure that people not only enjoyed the collaboration with me, but also 
were paid a fair wage and, you know, I could help support their lifestyle as independent creators because I remember what it was like when I was a freelancer and it could be really rough, right? Like there were, there's a lot of living paycheck to paycheck, a lot of, uh, extremely detailed Gen Con budgets. Like, okay, if I only spend $2 and 50 cents on breakfast this day, then I can spend $5 on lunch. Ooh. Right. And you know, that, that was rough. Like that, that yeah. was, that's tough. And I know a lot of people still deal with that. Right. And so, um, you know, part of being a good collaborator is making sure that people can, that people are uplifted by the collaboration. And I think that's super important to me. And it's one of the reasons why, like, yeah, like if, if I had to spend a little bit more money on art in order to get nicer art, I was going to do it. Right. Because I want a quality product and I want people to be, you know, compensated fairly and uplifted by the work that they're doing for me. Like, I think that's the only way to do it. And if I can't do that, then I shouldn't make the game. It's sort of my opinion. Right. right? Yeah, like, absolutely. I'm not going to try and force it out if I can't do those things. Right. And if it means that you push it back a little bit farther until you get what you want, then that's exactly what happens. Yep. You're on nobody's time schedule, but your own. Yeah, basically. Yep. Yeah. But speaking of time schedule, I know that uh, you said that you were only had about a half an hour. And we've gone over that by right about twenty minutes. That's okay. That's okay. No problem. I, like this is what always happens, right? I start running my mouth and it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I know that uh, you've got some obligations you got to take care of, so we won't hold on to you too much cool. longer. But take a few minutes. Uh, let us know how everybody can get a hold of you. When yeah, Kickstarter is coming out. Let us know all that good details. Sure. Uh, okay. So. The best way to find out more about the game is to go to scratchpadpublishing.com. Uh, you can also go to duskcityoutlaws.com. They all kind of point back to the same place. Uh, and that's got a ton of information up on the game right now. You can see a lot of the art. It's got, I've been putting up blog posts like two to three times a week that are explaining mechanics and stuff like that. So if you want to know about the game, scratchpadpublishing.com is the, the best way to find out about it. If you want to get in touch with me, there's a contact link on the website. Uh, you can also follow uh, scratchpadpub on Twitter. Unfortunately, Twitter does not offer very many characters for a username, so it is not, in fact, a pub, which I wish it was, but it is Scratchpad Pub, uh, my, my, my Twitter account there. Uh, so that's another good way to, to get in, uh, information on it. Uh, the best way to find out when the Kickstarter is going to go live is to sign up for the email list. If you go to the scratchpadpublishing.com, there's a link there that you just type in your email address and it signs up, and basically I'll be blasting out, like, hey, here's the... Here's the link. Kickstarter's live. Spoiler alert, it's going to be real soon. So, uh, Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's coming out soon. I'm, I'm really excited. I hope people are excited about the game, too. You know, I think it's going to be one of those games where players put a lot of their own creativity into it, and I'm trying to facilitate that creativity with the Kickstarter campaign. So uh, if people are excited about the game and start creating their own stuff for it or start running their own games and talking about like, you know, what they, what they did, like, here's how our crew pulled off this heist. I'm going to call that a win. Like, I think that's like the old, the, the, one of the, the best things that can come out of this is seeing other people using my sandbox to create their own awesome experiences. Right. They're bringing life into their own version of your world. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, it was definitely great talking to you, and we have yeah. to talk a little bit more once this Kickstarter is underway, and yeah, know, absolutely, add some new stuff, and yeah, you know, get the word out there a little bit more. So, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so I think this is actually we're going to wrap up this episode so we can cool. get you out of here. So, all right, to everyone out there listening, uh, this has been episode fifty of Skirmish Supremacy, and we will see you next time.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. To see more of the antics that Nick and I do, you can check us out on Facebook at Skirmish Supremacy. We also have Twitter, which we can be reached at Skirmish Supreme, because apparently Skirmish Supremacy does not fit in Twitter. And if you want to email us directly, you can reach us at Tim at SkirmishSupremacy.com or Nick at SkirmishSupremacy.com. Thanks for listening.